This is Theology on Tape for catechists or Catholics who just want to dig a little bit deeper. <laughs> My name is Shane. With me, as always, is Elizabeth. How are Hi. You doing? Yeah, it's, you did great. I know. Thank you. Just, uh, we, I usually say portable, but it's oh, pretty, uh, assumed, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. assumed that it is portable. What are we talking about today? This is the Old Testament series. Mm-hmm. We've talked about... Adam and Eve, creation, the fall. Mm-hmm. So Adam and Eve turn away from God. They disobey God. They fall into sin. So with the fall begins this great biblical narrative of the redemption, of okay. God wanting to restore humanity to union with himself, mm-hmm. the union that was broken by Adam. So where does he begin that process? He calls Abraham to create a nation. And through this nation, he's going to fulfill the promise that he made to Eve, that through her seed, through her offspring, there would be one who would come to crush the head of the serpent, right? Uh, okay. Okay. So Abraham is called and the beginning of the redemption story uh, happens there with Abraham. Abraham has a promised son, Isaac, Jacob with his 12 sons who moved to Egypt and become the great nation of Israel. Moses is called, raised up to bring them back to the promised land, out of Egypt, out of slavery. So now we pick up the story. The Israelites are back in their promised land, out of Egyptian slavery, and ready to continue on the mission that God has for them. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We have an opening prayer to get us going on that about... Advent, because we're going to be talking today about the coming of the Messiah. So now that Israel is settled, there's this looking forward to this expectation of, okay, now when is God going to fulfill the promise uh, of the Savior who will come? The Advent season is a season of waiting, of expectation, the coming of the Messiah. So that's our opening prayer for today. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In this Advent of expectation, draw us together in unity, that our praise and worship might echo in these walls and also through our lives. In this advent of expectation, draw us together in mission, that the hope within might be the song we sing and the melody of our lives. In this advent of expectation, draw us together in service, that the path we follow might lead us from a stable to a glimpse of eternity. Amen. Amen. I'm ready. (laughs) All right. So after the Exodus, the Israelites are now back in the promised land in Canaan. Mm-hmm. And so this is the land, of course, that God had promised to Abraham so many centuries before. And so, of course, as we talked about last time, there's the tabernacle, this uh, this portable sanctuary that they had carried through the wilderness for some 40 years. Mm-hmm. So they continue even now. So the, that sanctuary where the priests would offer sacrifice twice daily, that now gets settled um, in an area uh, called Shiloh, what will later be uh, Jerusalem. It's Salem first, and then later it's Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, Salem means, well, Shalom means peace. Jerusalem mm. um, means uh, the city of peace. So Salem becomes Jerusalem. So yeah, the priests continue doing their business, uh, sacrificing twice daily in the sanctuary. But there's another category of people that emerge around this time, once the people are back in their land. These are the people that we call prophets, Mm -hmm. okay? So the prophets are those who speak God's word. So that's the important definition for a prophet. Prophet is someone who hears a word from God and is able to speak it. Okay. So 
uh, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament time. He actually, interestingly enough, was raised by the priests. He uh, grew up in the sanctuary serving God. And he was called as a prophet when he was a young boy. His name is Samuel. So Samuel is one of the great prophets from the early history of Israel. And during the end of Samuel's life, so now when Samuel is an old man, so okay, so let's set the picture clearly. Samuel, because he's a prophet, because he can hear God's voice and he speaks for God, that's how the people are being led. They don't need kings. They don't need governors or whatever because God leads them through the prophets. But late in life, the people come to Samuel with a request. And that's what we pick up in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, all the elders of Israel assembled and went to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Now that you are old and your sons do not follow your example, appoint a king for us, like all the nations to rule us. Samuel was displeased when they said, Give us a king to rule us. But he prayed to the Lord. So, as we said, Israel did not originally have a kingdom, but that God ruled them directly uh, through the prophets. And so when Samuel approaches God with this request, God expresses some displeasure with this because he says ultimately, like, my plan was that I would be their king. Right. They don't need a king. Yeah. But as is always the case, and we see this today in the church, and we'll, it's a a universal human phenomenon is that Israel wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to fit in. They wanted to be part of the mainstream culture, if you will. So all the other nations have kings. So they felt like they needed a king too. And especially because Samuel's sons, uh, basically the inheritors of this work of prophecy, they weren't great guys. So they were a little nervous of like, well, you know, Samuel, when you're gone, who's going to lead us? We need a king. Okay. So... It's not God's idea, but God is willing to go along with it. But let's put a pin in that and remember that ultimately it was God's idea that he himself would be their king. But he's willing, because they asked, to grant them uh, the kingship, uh, to to give them a king. Now, originally Samuel, with God's assistance, chooses a man named Saul to be king. And Saul is a very stereotypical king tall the bible says he was he was a full head and shoulders taller than anybody else in the room Hmm. a big majestic handsome man so saul is a stereotypical king but he doesn't obey god uh there's a interesting story about his you know what god tells him to do and he doesn't do it we won't get into those details but basically because of his disobedience god is going to take the kingship away from him and give it to someone else because normally as i'm sure you would you would think the kingship is passed um until death it's from well but like from father to son yeah so saul's son should have been the next king right but because of his disobedience the kingship is taken away not just from him because he's allowed to live out his term as king but after his death rather than his children being king Uh, it's going to be given to someone else. So God tells Samuel, go out to a man named Jesse and one of his sons, I'm going to choose him as king. And that's where we pick up the story next. Okay. So this is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting with verse 4. Samuel did as the Lord had commanded him. When he entered Bethlehem and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and asked, is your visit peaceful, O seer? He replied, Yes, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
So purify yourselves and celebrate with me today. He also had Jesse and his sons purify themselves and invited them to the sacrifice. As they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the anointed is here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not judge from his appearance or from his lofty stature, because I have rejected him. God does not see as a mortal who sees the appearance. The Lord looks into the heart. Then Samuel asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Jesse replied, There is still the youngest, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send for him. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives here. Jesse had the young man brought to them. He was ready, a youth with beautiful eyes and good looking. The Lord said, There, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel, with the horn of oil in hand, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and from that day on the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Then Samuel set out for Ramah. All right, so again, beautiful story. I love this story so much. And it fits so much in line with everything that we've read in the Old Testament up to this point. God's subversion of expectations, right? So so God tells Samuel, I'm going to choose one of Jesse's sons as the next king. So Samuel shows up and he sees the oldest son uh, who is, you know, tall and handsome and strong. And, oh, this, surely, this must be who God intends. Mm-hmm. But, and this is where we get that famous line. Uh, Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Yeah. So you've heard, I and mean, we've all heard that before. That's yeah. where it comes from is this story of God is choosing a king. He doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the inside. Mm-hmm. And... So God says, no, it's not, it's not this one. And so Jesse's kind of confused um, because he's presenting his sons to the prophet. And surely it has to be one of these. And Samuel says, no, there, there, has, there must be another. Well, there's, there's David, but David's just a kid. Well, but David is the one that God had in mind because God could see David's heart. So David is brought in and is anointed. And this is very important. So anointing is the uh, ancient custom ceremony, how a king would be chosen. Um, So it's like an inauguration, Mm -hmm. right? The way we sort of swear in a president or something like that. But this anointing service, as it kind of describes here, is that the prophet or whoever is doing the anointing will take oil and pour it onto the head of the one being anointed. And that marks them. It's a sign kind of of the spirit coming on them. But it's, a, it's, a, it's a, this idea of God claiming them and them being commissioned for this special work. So David is anointed as king. And of course, he doesn't, as we said, he doesn't begin his reign as king until after Saul dies. But eventually David does become king of Israel and the country prospers under his leadership. Now, David was also a talented musician. Mm-hmm. He was a harpist. As uh, maybe A harpist? Is that what you call somebody who yeah. plays the harp? Okay. <laughs> uh, so David plays the harp. He's a musician, a, a poet. So a lot of his poetry, his songs for Israel, are recorded in the book of the Bible that we know as... Psalms. Psalms. Okay. <laughs> Psalms. Psalms. <laughs> it's fascinating then, right, that, that here we have... Every day at Mass, we recite one of the Psalms. Yeah. That yeah. this 
this very ancient custom that goes all the way back to ancient Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, we preserve today. So these Psalms are the songs of mostly of David. There are a few other authors in there. Um, But mostly these are the songs of David. Songs of worship, songs of lament, um, songs of repentance. A lot of repentance, right? Yes. So this is basically the hymn book, if you will, the hymnal of ancient Israel. All right. I want to look at one psalm in particular, though, that has an important line. This comes from Psalm 89. And we see there a promise that God makes to David uh, here in Psalm 89, verse 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will make your dynasty stand forever and establish your throne through all ages. As we'll see later, this is a really important promise that God makes a covenant. So we've heard this covenant language before. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Moses. Yeah. Now God makes a covenant with David. And he says that his dynasty, his lineage. So just like the kingship was taken away from Saul and his family, God can do that. But God promises, he says, that your dynasty, your kingdom will never be taken away. Mm -hmm. Your kingdom will last forever. I will establish your throne through all ages. So this is that Davidic covenant, that Davidic promise uh, is really important. And so we'll see where that comes back into play in a minute. But God also speaks to David on another occasion. Basically, he has a request for David. So this is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting with verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord. Is it you who would build me a house to dwell in? I have never dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up from Egypt to this day. But I have been going about in a tent or a tabernacle. As long as I have wandered about among the Israelites, did I ever say a word to any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? When your days have been completed and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, sprung from your loins, and I will establish his kingdom. He it is who shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. As we had discussed before, Moses constructs a tabernacle or sanctuary Mm -hmm. that is portable. Yeah. It's like a tent. Yeah, it's a tent because they need to because they're traveling, so they need to be able to pick it up and move it to the next place. So everything is movable. Mm-hmm. But now that they're settled in the promised land, God through the prophet now not Samuel, but the prophet Nathan, uh, says to David, you know, here you are living in a palace. Where is my house? Right. I'm living in a tent. So God says, "Why have you not built me a house?" But the privilege of building a permanent structure of worship is actually taken away from David. The Bible will later say that it's because of David's bloodshed, um, because of his sins, that he is not allowed uh, to be the one to build the temple. But he says, your son, I'll give you a son. He will build a house for me and I will establish his throne. So this son is Solomon. Mm -hmm. And so Solomon, David's son, is the one who builds this permanent structure of worship. So it has all of the same, everything we talked about before, the altar, the uh, table of showbread, the menorah, 
the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, all those pieces are there, except now rather than being intense and being a kind of portable structure, it's this big, glorious, permanent structure uh, that Solomon oversees the building of. And this structure, this temple, which is built in Jerusalem, is the center of worship for centuries. This is the heart of, you know, God's presence um, with the people of Israel. And this lasts for hundreds of years until uh, some bad news arrives. This is from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and laid siege to Jerusalem. The Lord handed him over to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and some of the vessels of the temple of God, which he carried off to the land of Shinar, and placed in the temple treasury of his God. The king told Ashpenaz, his chief chamberlain, to bring in some of the Israelites, some of the royal line, and of the nobility. Okay, so what do we see here? A lot of weird names and weird stuff going on. That I butchered, maybe. Yeah, no, nah, it's fine. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the Babylonians. So okay. this is a foreign nation. They come in and lay siege to Jerusalem. So they attack Israel. Okay. So they besiege the city. They capture... This is during the time of Solomon? No, no, no. This is, this is... Way after. Way later. Okay, okay. Okay, so the temple is built. Things like that go on for centuries. Okay. About, I mean, uh, another maybe 500 years, 400, 500 years, something okay. like that. So the Babylonians show up. They lay siege to the city. And Jerusalem is conquered. Now, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar goes to the temple. And it, what, is, what does it say here? But the vessels of the temple of God are carried away and put in the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar actually steals the sacred uh, furniture from mm. the temple, including the Ark of the Covenant. Mm. So people always say like, oh, well, where is the Ark of the Covenant today? We don't know. So all of the sacred vessels, and th that story comes back into play in the book of Daniel. You can read the, a lot of interesting stories there. But So of course they have these sacred vessels for worship and the Babylonians are using them to drink and to party and whatever. And so, you know, like God chalices judges. kind of thing. They're using the chalices for... Yeah, for non-sacred purposes, obviously. But one of the things that happens, so a couple important things here with the Babylonian invasion. One is the temple is destroyed. So that center of worship is gone. Okay. That's hugely important because that was the center of God's dwelling with Israel. Mm -hmm. That was the, everything happened there. Without the temple, how, what, what, what is even this religion anymore if there's no temple? So Where could they bring their sacrifices? There's no sacrifice. Because if there's no temple, then there's no sacrifice. And yeah. if there's no sacrifice, then what, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. So the destruction of the temple is huge. But the other thing that happens during this time period is that many of the people living in Jerusalem are captured and actually taken back to Babylon okay. to be enslaved. So they're turned into eunuchs <laughs> and made to serve in the Babylonian court. Hmm. Daniel is one of those people. Oh, okay. So you read the book of Daniel, that will give you the context of what's going on there in, in Babylon. But this is a period that we know as the Babylonian exile. And a lot of scripture, 
the Old Testament is really shaped by this experience. As you can imagine how traumatic this would be for a nation to have their temple destroyed, to have their people taken away. Everything seems to be hopeless at this point. Mm -hmm. But it's precisely at this point that the people begin to hope. And the prophets, because there are still prophets like Daniel, and the prophets speak of a messiah. Now, the word Messiah is important because in Hebrew, the word Messiah means the anointed one. And in ancient Israel, as we had said, there are a few different categories of people that can be anointed. Prophets are anointed. So if there's a new prophet, he needs to be anointed with oil, with oil. pouring the oil on the head. Prophets are anointed. Priests are anointed to begin their ministry. Mm -hmm. And of course, as we discussed, kings are anointed. So prophet, priest, and king are all categories of those who are anointed. So when these ancient Israelites are hoping, looking forward to the Messiah, this is the anointed one, mm -hmm. the one who would come and restore the kingdom to Israel, the one who would rebuild the temple, the one who would defeat God's enemies. He would be prophet, priest, and king. That's yes. the idea going on. And so this Old Testament longing for a Messiah, it really kind of begins, especially in this period of the Babylonian exile, where they need the temple to be restored. They need the kingdom to be uh, reestablished. So they need a Messiah. They need a savior. And eventually they are uh, released from Babylonian captivity. So actually, when the Babylonians are defeated by the Persians, it's the Persians who release them and allow them to go back to their land. Now, because of most of the ones who survived this are from the tribe of Judah. You remember, there are 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah. Those who experienced this Babylonian exile, the, the survivors are from the tribe of Judah. And so that's why the those who... We've been calling up to this point Israelites because they're from the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, now, after this period of the exile, we know them as Jews because they're from the tribe of Judah. So that's actually oh, okay. where we get that term to be Jewish is because they, they're all coming from the tribe of Judah. All right. Um, so all of that, this is, this is basically the whole history of the Old Testament because now we leave the Old Testament... The Old Testament doesn't have an ending. It ends with this cliffhanger of hope and expectation of someone is going to come to rebuild and restore and to save. And we call this person the Messiah, the anointed one. Mm -hmm. So, of course, everything is setting us up for, for the arrival of Christ. And Christ is simply... Some people get a little confused. They think Christ is Jesus' last name or something like that. Yeah. I've heard people say that. Christ. Mr. Christ. <laughs> Christ is simply the Greek translation of the word Messiah. Mm. Christ means the anointed one. So in the Gospels, in the New Testament, when Jesus is called the Christ, so for instance, the disciples, they, they come and they say, we have found the Christ. Oh, uh, yeah. What they're saying is we found the Messiah. 
Here is the one who will rebuild the temple, the one who will restore the kingdom. Now, of course, Jesus does all of those things in unexpected ways because the temple that he rebuilds is not just a physical temple, but is his body, the church. Uh, So Jesus does fulfill these messianic promises, but in quite unexpected ways. But I want to just leave us with that sense, uh, that Advent spirit of longing, waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Just like that old uh, the, the Christmas song, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Hmm. Right? So it's that idea of like, we're in exile. We have been taken away from our home and we're longing for the coming of a Savior, a Messiah. So the New Testament, we get to rejoice. And yes, <laughs> and the New Testament picks that up and brings to fulfillment. That's why all of this Old Testament stuff is so important. Because if you just start in the New Testament, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. Well, what, what in the world is a Messiah? There's no context for any of it. So next time when we're able to then move into the stories of Christ, mm-hmm. we know what it means to be. What does it mean when we call him Christ? <laughs> Yeah. What does it mean that he's the son of David? All of those things are important because we have this background. Yeah. This concludes the whole Testament, the Old Testament series that we've gone through. Next time, we will talk about the incarnation and the arrival of this one who is Emmanuel, who is God with us, the one who fulfills these messianic promises. So we'll start next time with the birth of the Messiah. Great. So yeah, thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share this podcast. And really, thanks for listening. (laughs) Bye. See you next time.